for all of those for for all those folks who like me come from an Italian background, I think you'll appreciate the following story. Uh, there was an elderly man who was lying on his deathbed, and while uh, suffering the uh, agonies of impending death, uh, he suddenly s- smelled the aroma of his favorite Italian aniston uh, sprinkle cookies that were wafting up the stairs. And he uh, gathered himself up, and with the little strength that he had, lifted himself from the bed. He leaned against the wall, slowly made his way out of the bedroom, gripping the railing with both hands. He crawled downstairs, and with labored breath, uh, he leaned against the door frame and gazed into the kitchen. And, and were it not for death's agony, he would have thought himself already in heaven. Because as he looked out in the kitchen, spread out on wax paper on the kitchen table were literally hundreds of these favorite cookies of his. And he was asking himself, was this heaven? Or was it one final act of love from a devoted Italian wife of 60 years, seeing that her husband would leave this world a happy man? So mustering one great final effort, he threw himself towards the table, landed on his knees in a rumpled position, and the aged and wrinkled hand, he reached up, and as he was just about to get a hold of one cookie, he felt the spatula smack him on a hand. And he looked up, and his wife said, don't you think about it, they're for your funeral. <laughs> you know... I love stories like that because it illustrates how easy it is to kind of miss the, miss the point, you know? It's like there's a bigger picture here. But, uh, you know, and it's really important that, you know, we have something that is kind of like our navigational system or, you know, or, or where we can go and find, you know, are we, are we going in the right direction? Are we, are we thinking the right things? Are we behaving in the right manner? And one of the things I love about the Bible is that it's God's, you know, navigational system for God's people. And we go back to the Word of God, and we can discover whether, you know, hey, I'm either on track or I'm off track. I'm either thinking right or I'm thinking wrong. I'm either acting right or I'm acting wrong. And so, as we continue in this series, uh, Living in Light of Eternity, we come to what would be the definitive passage uh, when it comes to explaining the rapture of the church. But if, as you'll see when we get to this passage, there's much more to this passage than just talking about the rapture. And in fact, in this section, we're going to find the hope for all believers. You've got Bibles with you. Uh, hopefully you do. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In verses 13 through 18, we're going to examine seven things that will give all God's people hope as it relates to the, the topic that we've been going through on a weekly basis, and that is living life, life, this life, the present life, in light of eternity and what God has for us in the future. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting with verse 13. We read these words. <clears throat> but we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, in this passage, the Apostle Paul addresses the question You know, does the death of a believer before the Lord returns cause him to lose all hope of sharing in the reign and the rule with Christ? And what this means is that these people understood, these believers understood, uh, because most of them, as you know, came from a Jewish background. They came to faith in Jesus as the Savior, the Messiah, the long-awaited promised one of God. 
They believed what God had said in the Old Testament, that one day Messiah would rule and reign on the throne of David, his father, forever. And so they understood that there would be a literal earthly kingdom that would be established by God's Savior. And they were concerned that if they died, they would miss out on ruling and reigning with him. And so the question prompts this passage that we have before us, you know, well, what happens to people who die before Jesus establishes his earthly kingdom? And we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks from now, uh, which typically are, are commonly called the millennium period or the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so they were questioning, okay, what happens to people who died before Jesus comes back? And that's what the answer is going to be uh, when we see this. In the meantime, they were ignorant. They didn't know. They weren't sure. You know, they didn't know what would happen. So in the passage, Paul addresses their confusion. And from his answer, we're going to take a look at seven things. The first thing, if you've got your outline and you want to follow along, is that the first thing that we see in this passage is that this passage has more to do with hope than anything else. It talks about our hope that's in Christ. And the hope that we find or the reassurance that we all need concerning those loved ones who have died, that is the primary question and that's the primary um, answer that we find. But we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be ignorant brethren, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. Now remember we talked about sleep was a euphemism for death that the body rests, but the soul continues to live. And he said, we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about what happens to people when they die. And so he says that you may not grieve as do the rest of those who have no hope. Now, as I read through this passage, there were a few things that stood out. The first had to do with the fact that God does not want his people to be ignorant or uninformed. His desire is that we learn and grow in the knowledge of the Lord and, <clears throat> and of his truth. And unfortunately, too many of God's people are content in their ignorance. And I'm concerned about that because that's a very dangerous place to be. A person who has no hunger for spiritual things. A person who has no desire in learning more about their God. A person who has a lack of interest in reading the Bible, the person who has a contentment level of, I, I don't, you know, I don't really care. That's a scary place to be because the word of God says that we should hunger and thirst for God, that we should have a, a, a strong passion for God, a pursuit of God. As the deer pants by the water's brooks, so my soul pants for you. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, and the question that I have is that, can you really be a person who has come to faith in Christ, become a child of God, been truly born again, and not have any interest in spiritual things? I mean, is that even possible? To not have a desire to grow in your faith, to know more. See, these people are believers. He called them brothers, but they had a hunger to grow. They had a desire to know more. They had questions that they wanted answered, and they weren't content until they got them. It's a question of priorities, it's a question of passion. But more than anything else, it really is a question of relationship. And it comes down to that. You know, no one has to tell me to read the Bible. No one has to tell me to seek God. Because as a child of God, I, I, I don't have any other choice. I have a deep burning passion and I've had since the day that I repented of sin and trusted in Christ as my Savior to know him more fully every day and to seek him and to, to try to understand him or, or to try to get answers from him in every area of life 
And, you know, a lot of times it's not cut and dried, but a lot of times the Bible is very clear about certain things and certain activities and certain ways of thinking and doing things. And my point is, is don't be content with your ignorance. You know, there's so many lessons, again, that I learned in the hospital, um, you know, just about the complexity of the human body and, you know, and just how fearfully and wonderfully we were made. And, you know, and it's amazing just to see, you know, the, the, the struggle that human beings have in trying to figure things out. It's like, what happened? What's going on? Well, wow, we don't know, and we'll try to rule things out and try to figure it out, but we can't figure it out. And you begin to realize, you know, how amazing God is. And, and when we talked about in the intermediate heaven and, and beyond where we will be able to have conversations with God, we can spend eternity with God picking his brain, so to speak, and never fully comprehend everything that he knows. I mean, and we'll, wanna, and we'll want to learn, and we'll want to grow. And I think that what I'm trying to get across to you is this, that one of the, the, the litmus tests of a person who is truly born again is that they are not content being ignorant of the things of God. And so my point is, don't be content with your ignorance. Search the scriptures and watch God open the secrets of the universe to you. That's why we're committed to have Bible studies. That's why we're committed to have foundation classes. Do you really know what the Christian faith is all about? That's why we're committed in our shepherd groups and small groups to have Bible studies, to learn more about God and to enter more fully into that relationship with him. We're committed to equip the, work, equip the saints for the work of ministry. But the only way that we can do that is through the study of the Word of God. And it goes beyond just showing up once a week to a Bible study. It goes to every day, that vibrant relationship that you have with other human beings, we need to have with God. You can't grow in your knowledge of God if you spend no time with Him. You can't grow in, in, in your knowledge of God if you're not spending time in the Word of God. So how much time do you spend really pursuing God? And you know what? And that's one pursuit. That's the easiest pursuit in life because you, you don't have to chase Him down. He's not running from us. We pursue God and He pursues us. And you know what? And when we're pursuing each other, then we get to know each other. I'm going to challenge you not to be content in your ignorance, but to grow in the knowledge of God. Another thing that stood out was the fact that Paul wasn't condemning of them. If you notice, he calls them brethren or brothers. And the reason that he does is that, you know what? Once they put their faith and trust in Christ, they were born again into the family of God. They became a brother and sister in Christ. And so from a family standpoint, they were adopted into the family of God. They didn't know as much as maybe some of their siblings, but he didn't condemn them for not knowing because he knew that they had to learn and they knew, he knew they had to grow. And part of leadership is teaching people with patience and instruction and, and showing them that this is God's will, this is God's way, this is what God would have you do in a certain situation based upon the word of God and not on my own personal opinions. So, you know, with gentleness and patience, we teach and we bring others along in the faith. And, uh, you know, I guess my point is don't feel guilty about being ignorant of spiritual truth. But on the same token, I want you to feel guilty about not wanting to know. And there's a huge difference between the two. Don't feel guilty about not knowing but feel guilty about not wanting to get an answer to your ignorance. And that's the difference between a person pursuing God and a person playing God. You know, give me three bucks worth of God. That's the person that says, hey, I'm, at least I'm going to church two or three weeks out of the month. So what? Our pursuit of God is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. To see his hand in everything. 
to try to understand what he's trying to teach us, to be constantly in the word of God. And you can do that. It's a matter of priorities, and it's a matter of passion. What are you passionate about? I know guys, and I love to golf, and I haven't been able to golf in a long time. And I know guys that man go and they spend a whole bunch of time taking golf lessons, going to the driving range, buying golf videos, buying all these gadgets and little things, you know, that, you know, you put around your body and it keeps your arms straight. And, you know, it's like, but, you know, and that's okay. Because that's something they're passionate about. But are we that passionate about God? I, I hope. And that's my job as pastor is to encourage you to be as passionate about God as you are for anything else. Because the greatest passion, the greatest love is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and then to love your neighbor as yourself. So anyway, the point is this again. You know, don't, be, don't feel guilty about being ignorant of certain spiritual truth, but I want you to feel really guilty about not caring enough to get answers for your ignorance. Notice the purpose behind this teaching in verse 13. Anytime you read through the Bible and you see the phrase, so that, or that, that is a tip to help you understand why is he he telling us this stuff? And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that, or that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The purpose statement behind this teaching is that he doesn't want God's people to grieve about those who have died like those who have no hope. There's a difference between how a Christian sees the world and life and the afterlife from those who don't know God. There's a type of grief. We'll all grieve because we'll miss one another when death interrupts our life together. But there's a grief that there's hope, and there's a grief with no hope. So I was laying in the hospital, and I was watching Larry King. And he was interviewing a gal who was on Time Magazine's list of, uh, I forget how many, the most influential Christian evangelicals. And he could not grasp Or better yet, he could not accept the fact that rejecting Jesus sentenced one to hell. Yet in verse 14, we clearly see that that is the truth of Scripture. Verse 13, he said, we don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope because as God's people, we have hope. But notice this, for since or if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And so he's saying that, you know, outside of faith in Christ, the Bible's message is clear. In order to go to heaven, in order to be made right before God, one must repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved from the wrath or judgment of God. And so the the Bible is very clear. Outside of Jesus, there is no hope. Outside of Jesus, there is no other way to heaven. Outside of his death on the cross and his resurrection and our acceptance of that, we will never get to heaven. We will go to hell. He just could not accept that. But what about all the other religions? Well, according to Scripture, they're wrong. Because any belief system that denies that Jesus is the only accepted way of God is wrong. But they're good people. Well, what makes someone good? The Bible says none of us are good. No, not one. That none are righteous and we've all fallen uh, short of the glory of God. That we've all gone astray like sheep. We've turned our back on God. The Bible says through Adam, sin entered into the world. and, And after sin came death. And that we were conceived in iniquity in our mother's womb. And every one of us are born into the world from God's perspective, sinners in a rebellion against him. There is no such thing as a good person when it comes to measurement against a perfect God. See, there's good people as we measure ourselves against one another. 
But that's not the standard that God uses to base his judgment. So he had a really difficult time with that. And the word of God is very clear, though. That's the message that God wants the world to know. That men everywhere repent and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Why do people get angry with that? Because at the root of that is the fact that we don't like God telling us what to do. See, we want to get to heaven on our terms. We want to believe whatever it is that we want to believe. We want to tell God that, you know what, you have no right telling me that I must believe in your son. You have no right telling me that his death on the cross and his resurrection is the only way to get to heaven. And we'll show you that there's other ways for that to happen. And you know what? God just said, hey, I'm God. I set the rules. I lay it all out. It's my way or the highway to hell. And so you either accept it or you reject it. And if you reject it, then you will pay the price for your sins. If you accept it, then I will bless you and I will make Jesus your substitute for judgment. But it's up to you. And so as I was thinking about that, the question is, have you complied with God's way? Have you repented of your sins and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, you'll find hope in this instruction. Because this instruction is just for God's people. This instruction is just for those of us who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ, have been born again by the will of God, not by our own human efforts, who've accepted God's gift of salvation, have been adopted into the family of God, and this instruction is for us. And we will be encouraged by it. A second thing that gives all believers hope is the return of Jesus Christ himself. Notice this in verse 16. We read, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. I love that. For the Lord himself, after his resurrection, Jesus made a point to say to his disciples, it is me, it is me, myself. You know, it's like, feel me, touch me, it's me, it's really me. And and the emphasis in this passage is that this verse, we get a beautiful word picture of what will take place when Jesus returns for his church. Notice, Notice the first thing is, look at the entrance that he makes. The entrance is, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. You know, the, it's, the use of the intensive pronoun means himself and no one else. It is me and no one else. And the focal point is that it's all about Jesus. It's me and no one else. I love that. Because what he's saying is, there is no one else to turn to. There is nowhere else to go. And when I read it, I was immediately reminded of the conversation that he had with the disciples when the multitudes left him after Jesus said, well, most of you are following me because you want freebies. You want handouts. You know, I'm feeding you and you don't have to go to work and you think this is a good gig and how long do you think this is going to go on? And working with professional athletes, I laugh about that all the time because I see that. I see it all the time. It's like, you know, in fact, yesterday they were talking about some of the guys from like the Dominican and places like that that come from really poor countries where people, you know, their family are constantly asking them for money. And it's like three times, you know, this one guy in his family needed money for his dad who was dying, who was never sick a day in his life. You know, and he said, it was like, I, you know, I don't know. It's like, who do you help? And, who, you know, you just get to the point of who do you help, who don't you help? And, and it, gets, it gets hard. And they got to the point where they just start to depend upon, hey, man, you need to sign your contract. Why? Well, we're counting on you. Well, well go get a job. Well, why? If you're going to give us money and we don't have to work, why would we do that? 
So, you know, it's that type of thing. Well, anyway, that's a today version of what Jesus went through when it was like, well, you know what? I'm not going to feed you every day. You're going to have to go back to work. And it's like, well, we're not going to follow you anymore. And his disciples, you know, Jesus asked the disciples, well, if that's the case, then are you guys going to leave too? And he said the greatest answer was, where are we going to go? Because, you know, you have the words of eternal life. There's, no, there's nowhere else to go. There's no one else to turn to. It's all about you, Jesus. And this passage reinforces that. It's all about Jesus. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. The blessed hope of the church is that we look for, long for, love his appearance. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do you long for his appearance? Do you even think about it? It goes back to priorities and passions again, doesn't it? It's like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I, I, I can't wait for him to come back, but can he wait till after we get back from a vacation in Hawaii? You know what I mean? It's like, I'm longing for it. Not necessarily. The people who are longing and looking for his appearance are the people that I met during the course of the week that lay in hospital beds that are dying and can't wait to be relieved of their suffering. God's people are mistakenly fooled into thinking that we can enjoy this life and then think about sometimes the longing for his appearance. We need to suffer more in order to appreciate what we're reading right here that says, hey, I long for and look for and love his appearing. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, we also learn that the execution of divine authority, it says that he will come with a shout. Turn with me in the book of John, the Gospel of John, and I'll show you what it means because it has to do with authority. It means to command. This is what Jesus referred to in the Gospel of John in chapter 5, starting with verse 24. We read, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. And shall come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And he's talking about, going back to 1 Thessalonians 16, he's talking about authority. He's saying that, you know, with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, there's a royal escort and divine exaltation that we see here. Notice this. The archangel is the angel Michael. And in Jude 9, we read that, and also 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. And the trump of God represents the voice and approval of God. And you can spend a whole bunch of time digging into all this, but the bottom line is this. From the text, we're certain of one thing, that when Jesus returns for the church, it will be announced forcefully and dramatically from heaven. And everyone will know. With the, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Which brings us to point number three, the resurrection of believers who have died. The dead in Christ shall rise first. This phrase teaches us that those who have uh, repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, what are commonly referred to as church-age Christians, 
people who knew Jesus, people who trusted in Jesus, people who lived at the time of Jesus and there afterwards, church-age Christians will at this time receive their resurrected body. You know, we talked about the intermediate heaven. If we would die today, we'd be absent from the body and present from the Lord. You know, we talked about the fact that, you know, those who are in heaven are given robes. And, you know, are they spirits, disembodied spirits? Are they given a temporary body in the intermediate heaven, an intermediate body, so to speak? Whatever it is, it's not God's final plan. His final plan is, just shown to us right here, is that we will have a new resurrected body that God will take our old bodies and that he will transform them into these resurrected glorified bodies that will have unbelievable abilities that we don't have today and if you want to know more about that you got to come back next week (laughs) because that'll be the focal point of what we're talking about so we're going to take a look at that next week but in the meantime we know that the dead in Christ And the word rise has to do with resurrection. The dead in Christ, those who have died first, will be given resurrected bodies. And then the fourth thing is, we see that it's the removal of living believers out of this world. Look at verse 17. It says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord. Notice Paul uses the word we, which put himself in the living group, which he was at the time, he was alive, and he said that, you know, we who are alive would be caught up with him. So he thought that there was a possibility in his lifetime that Jesus would return, which is fascinating because it is a very strong argument when it comes to, see what's, fa- you know, Christians all, you know, believe in the rapture of the church. Jesus comes back for the church. Disagree on the timing, you know, when that is. Is it before the tribulation? Is it in the middle of the tribulation? Is it the end of the tribulation? You know, they debate all these things. And yet are still in common, you know, uh, there's a common belief that, okay, but we know he's coming back for the church. Now, in this particular case, he talked about the imminent return of Christ, which meant that, you know what, there, was, there weren't things that had to take place. It wasn't three and a half years into the tribulation. It wasn't at the end of the tribulation that the return of the Lord has always been taught to be imminent at any time. There wasn't anything that was holding him back other than God's timing and God's schedule. So he believed in his day, and it's scripture, so it's inspired, that, you know what, Jesus could return at any time. And so we are to live our lives in light of the fact that, you know what, Jesus could return today. And the question for you is this, have you given that any thought? Do you really believe that Jesus could come back today? Most people, well, no, I don't, I, he's not coming back today. Well, why not? Well, I don't know, but it's like, well, then, you know what, today's e- even more a possibility for you because the Bible says he'll come back when we least expect it. <laughs> so think about that. It's like, no, it can't be today. Well, if you don't think it can be today, it, it could be even more so today. Now, that'd give you a headache. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it's what, what God wants us to understand. He thought Christ might return in his lifetime. At least he allowed for the possibility, which helps us understand uh, God in his his own, you know, is on his own schedule and timetable. That's why Jesus said it it wasn't for us to know the time or the place. And uh, and, in the book of Acts, the first chapter, it's like, you know what, hey, wait a minute. You know, God's on his own schedule. He's got his own timetable. He's got his own plan. And you know what, it wasn't for anybody to know the time or the hour. And so, you know, that became very clear to them. He said to him in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So God says, listen, I don't have to explain everything to you because I'm God and I've said it and fixed it by my own authority. So, you know what? It's going to happen when it happens. 
Now, in 1 Thessalonians, 16, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, in this verse, we find the words caught up. And the words caught up are actually from the Latin word raptoro, which comes to us, the English word rapture. And what's fascinating to me is how much conversation takes place among believers about this one event when this is the only reference of it in all of the Bible. This is it. That verse is it. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up, caught up, raptured. And most of us, like I said, love the idea of the rapture. And the reason is very simple. is because we know we won't have to say goodbye to someone we love. And for the most part, death is a solitary journey. But when it comes to the rapture, then, you know, if my wife has trusted in Christ, she's coming. If my children have trusted in Christ, they're coming. If my grandchildren have trusted in Christ, they're coming too. If my family, you know, my siblings, my parents, if they've trusted in Christ, we're all taking the bus together. The rapture, you know, the rapture express. And we all like that. Because we like the comfort of knowing that we're all together. And we won't have to say goodbye, see you soon, see you in a little bit, see you later, whatever it is that most people have to go through in life. So I'm convinced we like the rapture because it's a group event. And, uh, and for that reason. Now, think about the other side of this. You miss a lot. If you go in the rapture versus just getting called home by yourself. So I'm kind of debating on, <laughs> well, you, you know, when you're laying in a hospital bed, you think about stuff you don't have time to think about otherwise. But I'm kind of debating on the fact that, you know, going out um, of this world into the next, you know, by yourself, you get the full focus of the presence of God. It's kind of more personal. See, I don't like group events. It's, you know, you get lost in a crowd. You're just a number. You're just, you know, one more resurrected person. But if you die before the rapture, you get, you know, personal treatment. Am I off base here or what? <laughs> I don't know. It's just something to think about, you know. But the other, you know, the end of the day, we can't lose. It's a good gig no matter what. So, you know, if he calls you home by yourself and the angels of God escort you into the presence of God, and you know, and it's like, here comes Chuck. You know, it's like, that's good versus, well, everybody. <laughs> I don't know. That morphine does to you. <laughs> anyway, um, where are we? Number five. Let's look at the reunion of all believers in the air. Verse 17 it says, We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. You know, together with them in the clouds. Together with who? Together with, have, have you had somebody in your family depart from this life into the next? Have you had your mother, your father, grandfather or grandmother, close friend or child who is trusted in Christ and we know that they're absent from the body but they're present with the Lord? If Jesus came today, we would be caught up with them, those who are already there, and we will be together with them forever. Think about that moment, that moment in which we'll be together, that moment in which we will be reunited with our believing family and friends. 
this is a great statement of encouragement. You know, death is a great separator, but Jesus Christ is the great reconciler. Death is the great separator, but Jesus is the great reconciler. You know, the Bible doesn't reveal all the details of the reunion, but the Lord will have the happy ministry of reuniting family and friends whose relationships were temporarily broken by death. And I was thinking about this, and I thought about, do you know the joy that there was when Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son and then gave him back to his mother, Darius' daughter, and gave her back to her dad. Lazarus, come forth. I want to give you back to your sisters who love you so much. We don't get the details here, but do you realize the joy of that family reunion where our great reconciler, our great reuniter, this wonderful reunion that we'll have when Jesus says, you guys are back together again. Wow. (laughs) That's awesome. Because if the Lord tarries, you and I are going to have to say goodbye to one another at some point. But it'll just be temporary because he will bring us back together. That's a great reunion. Personally, I've never gone to any of my high school reunions. I went to one of my wife's And it's like, those are such a mess. I mean, you know, you talk about just things that are tainted by sin. You know, and it's just not that, but it's like, you know, family reunions. They all sound good on paper. But then when you get there, you realize there's people behind all of this. And it's like... There's nothing like this reunion where we will be together with them. Now, that's a reunion that you don't want to miss. And it just gets better than that. Notice that. And we will meet the Lord in the air. The word meet, is the Greek word conveys the idea of meeting a royal or important person. We who know Christ, have walked with him by faith on the earth, and now the Bible says that we shall see him just as he is. We will have resurrected bodies. We will be able to see God because the bodies that he will give us will allow us for the first time, you know, other than this intermediate state, but will allow us to see God for who he is. You and I can't see God today in these sinful tents that he's given us. These collapsing tents, these bodies that are, you know, tainted by sin. Because if God would show himself to us, we would die. But we will be able to see him for who he truly is. And it will be a wonderful thing to have a meeting with royalty the God of the universe. Number six, we see the reality of being with the Lord forever. In verse seven, I mean, 17, you know, the end of the verse, and we will be with the Lord, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Think about this. That meeting will last forever. That's what Jesus meant in John 14, three, when he said that I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus focuses on the place that he's preparing for us, which is heaven. We'll talk about that through the series, that permanent heaven, that new earth, the new Jerusalem, all that we can look forward to. I prepare a place, heaven, 
that where I am, you may also be. And it's a focal point of the person that we will spend eternity with. Ladies and gentlemen, heaven is heaven because that is where God resides. And there is no place that God's people should hunger and thirst and crave and have a passion for more than I can't wait to come to your house. To that place that you've prepared for me, that person I long to see, the creator of the universe, the one the world denies the one the world calls the Big Bang, the one the world that in its wisdom never got to understand nor know God, but we will see the fact remains there is a creator God and he has made you and I in his image. He took us from dust, he formed a body and he breathed a soul and a spirit into it and called him man and we will be able to see the one who is so awesome that doctors spend their life studying one small portion of the human anatomy and they still don't understand or get it. They spend forever trying to understand one thing. Can you imagine spending your whole life studying toes? <laughs> well, pick your part. I mean, that's what they do. Pick a part. A whole lifetime. And go, we're still not sure exactly how this works. We're doing our best. And we will see the one who has made us so fearfully and so wonderfully. Man, that is, that's just good stuff. Lastly, our hope is, uh, look at the, the remedy for all our worries and fears. Verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, we're to encourage one another with God's word. You know, you can believe everything that I said that comes from the word of God. Because God's word is truth. It's not my opinion. It's not what I'm thinking. It's not what I'm feeling. You can believe what I said if it comes from the word of God. You have a responsibility, as do I, to measure what is spoken against the objective standard of God's word. God calls those who do more noble-minded. They are those who check and examine scripture to make sure that whatever the speaker says is accurate. Bottom line is this. You can believe what has been said because it comes from the word of God. We comfort one another with God's word. That's why we need to be in the word of God. We can go over these notes and look at them and, man, you know what? This is solid stuff because it's truth. We have hope, and we don't grieve like those who don't, because we do have hope. This is the blessed hope of all believers, to look for, to long for, to love his appearing, the day that Jesus will come for us, or call us home individually. Death is not an accident waiting to happen. It's a... It's a divine appointment. It's a divine appointment. And I got a lot of comfort in that. Death is not an accident waiting to happen. But it is by divine appointment that that moment will come. If you, if you die today, where would your soul go? I read of a quaint inscription on a gravestone and it was in an old British cemetery not far from Windsor Castle <clears throat> and it read as such pause my friend as you walk by as you are now so once was I as I am now so you will be prepare my friend to follow me I had heard that a visitor who read the epitaph added the following lines. To follow you is not my intent until I know 
which way you went. <laughs> I like that. You know, we have wonderful assurance and hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his promised return. And the question in closing is this, do you have that hope? And which way are you going? Which way are you going? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just are in awe of your word, of your truth. And the convicting power of your spirit as we read through it. God, my burden, my heart right now is for those who aren't sure which way they would go. If they would die today, would they be absent from the body and present with the Lord? Or would they die today, be absent from the body and waiting in Hades or or hell for judgment? God, it's my prayer that those who are confused and don't know that if Jesus came back today, that they would be left behind, that they would come to you today praying a simple prayer, God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. I understood today that there is no hope outside of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection on my behalf. I'm like the Larry King. I, I, I just, I, I want to do it on my own. I want to do it my own way. And I don't want to believe that there is only one way to heaven and that's through Jesus. And yet I realize that the final authority always makes the final call. And if that's your plan, then I just pray, God, you would forgive me because I know I'm not perfect. Even when I think I'm good, I know there's people better than me. When I'm bad, there are people worse than me. And God, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. And I believe what you say, that Jesus died for me, that he rose again from the dead, and that he has offered forgiveness to me even here and even now because he knows the desires of my heart. God, I thank you that those who put their faith and trust in you are born again by the will of God, not human efforts, not by works. But it's by by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. And so, God, we just pray that we continue to hunger and thirst for you as the deer pants by the water's brook so our soul should pant for God, that we have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we have a desire to seek you and to know you more fully to get in your word on a daily basis and develop that relationship that comes through faith in Christ. We thank you that you adopt us into your family and that we're children of God to those who believe in your name, that the day comes where you call us home, that we'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord and that one day, that temporary separation from friends and family who have trusted in Christ will be so far behind that we'll just forget about that separate separation that reunion will be such a wonderful thing god we believe your word that says you could come back even today and we need to be prepared for that and to live in light of that to live in such a manner that we live worthy of our calling so that others will be attracted to your savior and we just thank you and praise you in jesus name amen